Well, if you have your your Bibles this morning, the fun now begins. We're going to look at chapter 9 of Hebrews, all right? We uh, are getting back into Hebrews today, and I'll be honest, man, when we took a break, I was a weary traveler through the book of Hebrews, but now I'm an excited, um, I don't know, returner. It was going to sound cooler in my head, but it came out kind of lame. Um, But I'm excited to get back into Hebrews with you today, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 14 today. Uh, people my age, uh, around my age, and I'm, I'm 34, if you've ever wanted to ask me that and you've ever grown up the courage, I just told you, okay, so don't, it's not a big deal. I'm thankful for every year and every gray hair that my kids put in my beard. I'm thankful for all of that stuff. Um, people around my age grew up in the age of rapid technological advancement and development, especially in the home. Um, what I mean by that is that I'm not saying that technology is not still advancing or that it wasn't maybe uh, before, but in our, when I was a child, it was really, I mean, the, the, the foot was really on the accelerator and things started to happen very, very quickly. I learned to type like on a computer that could not access the internet uh, and I was using one of those big, not like, not like the small floppy disks that are like this. I mean, a big floppy disk that's like this, like an eight inch floppy disk that you put in, it just said typing on it and you put it in and then this program pops up and then. And that was how I learned to type. And there were like games and things. They had this big thing. It was like Pong. Insert. There's Pong. I mean, that's what, that's what computers were. When I first started, I was probably eight or nine years old whenever that was the case. And so I remember that. I remember when we first got internet in our home when I was about 13 years old. We were really late to the game. People started to have internet in their homes, and we got it around when I was 13, um, which I think is, is sort of like, you guys have ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? I think it's the Last Crusade. Uh, no, I think it's Raiders of the Lost Ark, actually. Whenever he goes into that, right at the beginning of the movie, he goes into that tunnel and he pulls that fertility god, whatever monkey golden thing off that statue or off that little platform and then the big rolling boulder comes after him. You know what I'm talking about? That's what the internet coming into our lives is like. It's like, ooh, it's, it's like Aladdin maybe is a better, you grab it and then all of a sudden, all you know what breaks loose. That's what the internet has been to us, right? And so I remember that though. I remember when we first got it and thinking, wow, we can see any kind of information. Wow. And you wait about 30 minutes and it's like, there's a web page. Whoa. And you say, ah, ah, the hallelujah chorus breaks out. I remember all that. I was a senior in high school whenever Facebook was first exclusively rolled out to not the public, but to college students. You had to have a college email address to get on Facebook, and I had one as a senior in high school, and so uh, I was part of the first people that received that, and then it obviously became a curse on our entire society. My point is, I really can remember life just life before, it, just how consumed we've become with smart everything. We've become, I mean, smart TVs and smart phones and just smart everything. And if it's not smart, it's dumb and you feel dumb for not having what's smart, right? But I remember before it was like that. And I think we would all be better without a lot of it, to be honest with you, especially social media. But there is one aspect of that advancement that I cannot now imagine life without. And it's a little thing called Google. I can't imagine it. And like, I know that I existed before Google, and I just can't imagine it anymore. I mean, <laughs> school is so much easier with Google. And some of you parents are like, yeah, I bet it is, you punk, because I didn't have it. And you had to go to the library. Dude, my dad went in seminary, he had to go to the library like 20 hours a week. I went zero hours ever for the entire time I was there, because I have a library. It's called my computer, and Google is my librarian, right? What did you do when you didn't know song lyrics before Google? Did you just call your buddy and say, do you know that song Did you, by, by Tim McGraw? Do you know that one? What's the lyrics of that song? I don't know. Let's call, let's call David. He might know. 
Is that what you did? I don't know. If you didn't know information about history, we had encyclopedias on our bookshelf, and there was a whole bunch of them. And if it wasn't in those encyclopedias, I just didn't know history. Like, that was it. I didn't have, I didn't have any way to know. The reason I say that is because when we, admi- we admire things best when we can compare or recall what life was before or without that thing. If a new road opens, and one just opened on 495, that makes things a little bit easier. And so there will be people that come up with, that, that road is all they know, and they don't remember the flooding and how the water was just sitting everywhere on that road before it opened. And so we see it and we're like, man, you should have seen what it was like before that thing. And that's true of, of so many different things. We admire things best when we can compare or recall what things were like before or without that thing. And if that doesn't fall on your ears, then maybe this will. 50 Cent said, the rapper said, sunny days wouldn't be so special if it wasn't for rain. Joy wouldn't feel so good if it wasn't for pain. And I feel that. <laughs> My point is that the good news stands out as good because of what it stands against, which is bad news. There is no preaching the good news of the gospel of salvation without firsting the bad news of the problem of sin, and that is the fact that everyone in this room, apart from God doing an amazing work, we have a big problem. We, we enter into this world on a one-way street that is headed towards separation from God in a real place called hell, and that's a problem for every single person in this room. Naturally, that's our destination, but there's good news, and that's that God intervened and he provided a solution to our greatest problem. He is the ultimate problem solver, in fact. So we're going to see this in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. I hope that you join me in looking at our text today. It says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is when the rubber hits the road, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Big comparisons and big contrasts that are happening in our passage this morning. 
The last verse that we looked at a few weeks ago, before we did the mini-series for Easter season, was chapter 8, verse 13. And I actually want to look at that before we look at chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, that's a new agreement, a new way, he makes the first one, that's the old covenant, the old way, the law, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. He says he makes the first one obsolete. And that easily leads into verse 1 when it says, now even the first one, the first covenant had regulations for worship. Here's what's happening. As the author of Hebrews is, is writing these things and he says, speaking of the first one being obsolete, here's why. That's, what he, that's the, the, the flow of the argument. Speaking of the first one being not good enough, here's why. And this is a, a really a summary passage of what we've already seen in this book. In fact, back in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, these are really the theme or the thesis verses of this whole section. It says this, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Here's why. For the law made nothing perfect, meaning made nothing right before a holy God. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So obviously the implication is with the old way, we can't get to God. But with the new way, we can. That's the hope. And in verse 1, he starts to talk about the old and then eventually to the new. The first covenant had regulations, he says. Regulations for worship, meaning ways to do worship. God had given that to them. You know, we got to remember that this is a book that's written to Jewish Christians. And because of that, there's a whole lot of context that goes into it that you and I may not be mindful of. And that's okay, but we need to figure some things out. One thing is that these people historically were surrounded by pagan people. That hasn't changed. We're still, as Christians, surrounded by a pagan world, meaning godless world that seeks and clings on to other false gods. And so the pagan neighbors of the Jewish people, they would constantly devise new and creative ways to portray and honor their false gods. They may build statues and build structures and do these creative things to say, oh, there's this fancy new way that we can worship. We can cut ourselves and we can build these moats and do these altars and they could do all of these different things. But Israel was different than that. Israel was not allowed to speculate or innovate or experiment with worship. They had regulations. You know what regulations are, right? They're regulatory. This is the way to do it. And God had given them the way. Don't experiment. Don't go figure out worship yourself. This is the way to do it. Where and how. In fact, in verse 10, if you look down real quick, it says, these things, various washings, food and drink, he says, regulations of, for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That, that word regulation is there again, as it is in verse 1, as a way of bookending a little section. Okay, And the bookend is there to show you the regulations for worship. Now, if there are regulations, that means that there is a regulator and not like Nate Dogg and Warren G. I had to say that. <sighs> regulations, anyway, a regulator. Who's the regulator? It's God. God's the regulator. He's the one that shows you this is where you worship, this is how you worship. As a regulator, he shows you the regulations of what worship looks like. This is really interesting. Check this out. I read that there are about 50 chapters, and you may not read a lot about the tabernacle or the tent. Your translation may say tabernacle or tent. There are 50 chapters in your Bible about the tabernacle or the priesthood or the tent. There are about two that are written about creation. That's pretty significant. I mean, this stuff that we may not give our minds to a lot is extremely important. In my opinion, you can't get the gospel without having some sort of a direct or indirect understanding of what we're talking about today, and we are going to hammer the gospel today. 
God has much to say about how he is to be worshipped. And this is what he does in verses 2 through 5. The author of Hebrews explains kind of what those regulations are. He says, for a tent, a tabernacle was prepared. Think of a big, ornate, we had an image that we've used before, and I'm not going to use it today. This big, ornate tent that God's people were instructed, regulated, to build, to worship him. It says, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. These are not details that we have to think too hard about because down in verse 5, he's going to say we can't speak in detail about these things. But he goes on and says, it's called the holy place, verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Those two, by the way, were built of gold. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Again, those things may, may put you to, to sleep and be like, "Why? what do these things even mean? I'm, Jesus is enough for me. I don't really care about big animals and, and statues and things in a little room that I'll never see. But you've got to understand, this book is written to people that did care about those things. And we also, by the way, should care about these things because it will grow and, and appreciate our admiration for Christ when it's all said and done. There's a lot of Jewish-sounding things in this passage. The tabernacle or the tent, for starters, is the most important one. And that's that God had given them this instruction to build this tent long, long time ago when God had liberated them from captivity in Egypt. He says, I want to be with you, and so I want you to build this big, fashionable, ornate structure, and you're going to carry it with you wherever you go. And here's what it represents. God with you. God dwelling among people. Now, that's, by the way, why when Jesus came, he said, Emmanuel, right? God with us. It's the same pattern that we see just in a different form. God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us eventually. But the purpose is that God and people belong together. God wants to be with people. That's why when he created Adam and Eve, he was with them in the garden, right? He has always desired to be with people. And in eternity, he wants to be with you for eternity. God and people together. He wants to be together. That's why he gave them the tabernacle or the tent. But you already see here in these verses two through five that there were barriers. You hear him talk about the first room and the second room, and there was this curtain, and there was this separation. Very important to understand is that while God was among them, he could not really be with them. He was holy, and a holy God cannot be with sinful humanity. And so while God wanted to be dwelling among them, ultimately there were barriers between a holy God and sinful humanity. Go ahead and throw that diagram up there. I think this will make it make a lot more sense. You get that diagram? Just work on that. It should be in that email, but work on that until you get it up there. I'll, I'll keep talking. So what we're going to see is there's a first section and a second section. The first section of this room, yeah, that's good enough. So you'll, you'll see the diagram is a little different. It was in that email, but that's okay. So you'll see that that big curtain in the very back of that tent, this is the tabernacle. You have lots of ornate and fancy things. There we go. That's the one. Okay, so ignore the outer courtyard on the right side of that image. You see the middle section, which is the holy place. And you'll see some things in that room that we just read about. The altar of incense, the table of the bread, the menorah, which is the lampstand that we just read about. That's the place where the priests would serve. And again, we read about these things in other places as well, in Leviticus and Old Testament. Um, one verse I'll, I'll read real quick is Exodus 26, 33. Speaking of, do you see the veil? The veil over here on the left side, pink line. Now that's a big, thick curtain a curtain that separates the left, the holy of holies, the most holy place from that center room. Track with me for a second. This verse talks about that and says, Exodus 26, 33, and you shall hang from the veil 
So I hang the veil from the clasps and bring the Ark of the Testimony, that's the Ark of the Covenant, in there within the veil, within that curtain. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. That means that there's a second section. The second section is what you see on the far left of that, and you'll see where it says the Ark of the Covenant is inside of there. That most holy place, also known as the Holy of Holies, had a few things in it as well. And you, we just read about this, so I won't go back there, but it talks a lot about gold. Did you see that? A golden altar and a golden um, Ark of the Covenant, golden cherubim, golden everything. And then it mentions a golden urn and Aaron's staff, tablets and the cherubim. Those items listed, they symbolize acts of redemption and God's faithfulness. But that's not the things that I want to focus on. The thing I want you to understand is that God was infinitely transcendent. Gold was the very best commodity that they had. And so God said, you just take whatever is the best thing that you have and you build everything out of that because I am the very best that you could possibly imagine. And so that's what they did. Gold in the ancient world was basically priceless. And so that composition represented the infinite value of heaven and of God. The tent reflected the holiness, the otherness of God. Now listen, the author doesn't get bogged down with those details. He assumes that the readers know them, but I know that most of us probably do not. And so I wanted to just hit those things real quickly. But here's the big point. God's house, the tabernacle then, God's house was a special exclusive place. You notice that we're going to read about just a minute. Priests, special people had to go and the general public could not. And here's why. This is very important. Because that tent was a reminder of sins, not a removal. It was a reminder of sins, of brokenness, and never a removal. It was a reminder of the barrier between a holy God and sinful man. Listen, every person in this room wants to go to heaven. Every person in this room wants to be with God, wants to go to heaven and be with God when they die. But that earthly tent depicted a heavenly reality, and that is that humanity and God cannot be together. How's that for good news today? That's tragic, is it not? Those are tragic circumstances for everyone. And we're going to get to the good news. But the bad news is that sin-stained human beings, of which we are, cannot go to heaven because of a couple of problems. And we'll start with the first one. We're going to do two problems and two solutions if you're taking notes this morning. The first problem is this, restricted access to God. Restricted access to God. And you don't have the credentials, by the way, left to yourself. Restricted access. It's not like you're a VIP and you can walk up in there with your lanyard and be like, I'm in here. You can't, left to yourself, okay? We have restricted access to God and we as sinful creatures cannot go into the presence of a holy God. A barrier called sin. And again, we'll get to the good news of what Jesus has done momentarily. Now, we're going to read a lot about priests here in just a second. And when you hear that word priest, if you haven't been with us for a while, that word simply should be understood as a mediator. Don't think of Catholicism. Think of the word mediator, an intercessor that comes between two parties that are naturally at conflict with one another. That's what a mediator is. And God gave the priesthood to mediate a holy God and sinful people. A conflict, a cosmic conflict needs mediation. Look at verse 6. He says, these preparations having thus been made, he says, the priests, mediators, go regularly into the first section, which we just saw a second ago, performing their ritual duties. Put that diagram back up there for just a second if you can. The priests would go in and do their regular duties in that first room, the holy place. They would go in and do their, their work in there. They would change the lamp oil. They would tend to the bread of the presence. They would tend to the incense fire. And they would offer daily offerings, sacrifices twice a day. It says here in verse 6, they went in there. The priests go, you see this in verse 6, the word regularly. They went regularly. You know what that means? 
they had to go constantly. They had to go make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice constantly. Verse 7 says, but into the second section, only the high priest goes. It's a different guy, one guy, not priests, plural, one guy goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And again, what you saw in that diagram just a moment ago, is that only the high priest goes in for annual duty. But here again, that word annual, it's constant, it's ongoing, because there is a problem that simply never gets satisfied by the ongoing work of these mediators. And the high priest did not enter the Holy of Holies whenever he wanted to, nor did he enter it boldly or confidently. He brought blood, and the reason why is not because they were a bunch of big weirdos. It was because blood coming into the presence of God was a way of saying, accept the fact that this life has died so that I do not die. That's, that's Jesus, by the way, right? Another has died so that we will not when we enter into the presence of God. That high priest went in on the day of atonement as a way of satisfying God's wrath temporarily for a certain time. In fact, you may not know this, that, burnt, that incense altar that's just outside of that curtain that we saw just a moment ago, he would burn something and bring it in and let the, a cloud of smoke fill the room before he approached the mercy seat where he would sprinkle the blood. And the reason why is I, I'm still unworthy to be in here. There has to be some sort of a, a, a cloudy barrier between me and even looking upon this mercy seat. God's holiness is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's still a big deal. That's why it's so scandalous that you and I can go to God. Because it was outrageous. Took blood in, sprinkled it on the mercy seat. It was a terrifying reminder that no one belongs in that room. No one belongs in the presence of God. Keep going. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, so God speaking, indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. There's these barriers, right? As as long as those barriers are there, well, there's a barrier there, which is symbolic for the present age, it says in verse 9. The tabernacle was a long thing that they had with them, but the belief in a sacrificial system, though the tent was gone, that belief of works turned mercy through a human mediator still lived on. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the Holy Spirit is preaching, The Holy Spirit is preaching that the system, the arrangement that's in place through the tabernacle, that restricted access to God, to only a very select few, as long as that setup is still standing, it's simply, again, a reminder that sin has made us distant from God. It is not a removal of sin, but a reminder that we are separated from God. You guys driven down North Hills here recently? You saw they're building a pizza hut? Anybody seen that? Is anybody excited about that? Pizza hut's kind of good, man. It's kind of fire if you get it done right. There's also, I saw a window in the side, so it's going to have a drive-through, which, man, I can't, I can't be talking about local places like this, but I've had bad experiences. But anyway, um, yeah, I'm not going to go into it, but we'll laugh about that later. You come talk to me about that, and we'll, we'll talk about it, okay? But right now, there's like an excavator out there. There's a big pile of, of, of dirt. There's not a parking lot. It's just Right now, it's just a muddy mess, right? There's an excavator there. There's obvious construction that's going on. And that excavator is out there, and that's your way of knowing that you can't get pizza. If you drove up there and be like, hey, where's the pizza at? You know what they would say? It's like, hey, get lost. There's clearly a lot of things standing in the way of us firing up an oven back here, right? The oven's not even here yet. (laughs) They would say, get lost because you're not going to get a pizza. My point is that they they are sending clear signals that there is a barrier in the way of what you want. Because there's all these things that are, they're evident. They're there. 
there's a barrier between the prize that you desire. And I just simply say that to say the purpose of the inner room, that, that tabernacle, that structure, that, that thinking, that way of thinking, the existence of all those things is that the Holy Spirit is declaring that's your way of understanding. As long as you hold to that, the way is not open. You're not going to get what you desire. You're not going to get no pizza, heaven. As long as you hold to that system, there is no glory for you. But the author has already said in the last verse of chapter 8, verse 13, the first one has come, and the, or the, old, the new has come, and the old thing is becoming obsolete. It's growing old. It's ready to vanish away. That's problem number one, restricted access. The problem number two is ineffective cleansing. Ineffective cleansing. Again, and these things kind of work together. The reason we have restricted access is because we're unclean, to use an Old Testament term. Ineffective cleansing. In other words, church, we have a heart problem apart from Jesus. We have a heart problem apart from God doing an amazing work in us. We stand guilty, not forgiven, guilty, not forgiven, and they had to keep on doing these sacrifices, attempting to achieve some sort of cleanness. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, which is symbolic of the present age. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, please hear this, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, meaning they can't come close to God. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He's talking about dietary things, offerings and washings. All of those things are surface deep. You and I have a big, deep problem. But all those washings that they did were only surface level. They're called regulations of the body, emphasis on body. They were achieving ceremonial cleanness. They wanted to go and be able to eat feasts and go into the temple and do all these things. And they had to be ceremonially, bodily clean to do that. And so God's wrath would be held back for another year. But it was all temporary. It was annual. It was regular, to use the verse here. They cannot perfect the conscience. That perfection of the conscience involves the full forgiveness of sins. And now we're getting somewhere, right? Those things could not truly forgive and clean the conscience. Chapter 7, verse 19, again of Hebrews, says, For the law made nothing perfect, clean, redeemed. Made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And maybe this is a good summary statement. Please hear this. The grand flaw of the Old Testament regulations is that they did not truly fix our sin problem. There had to be another. There had to be another way. And so that brings us to our first solution. First solution is access granted. It's access granted to a holy God, eternal redemption. Instead of ongoing regulations, we have Jesus that came and paid once for all, access granted, sin paid for. Look at verse 11. But, man, that's a great change of direction, isn't it? But, when Christ appeared as a high priest, mediator, like the one that goes into the presence of God, as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. It's simply God's way of saying that Jesus appeared, arrived on the scene, God's plan revealed in Christ, and that tabernacle, that most holy place, were simply pictures of the real. Remember we looked at that as an illustration. I showed you pictures from my honeymoon, and I was like, this is not the actual plane, this is not the actual ocean, and those were pictures, not real things, right? You can't feel those things and experience those realities, the breeze of that environment, because they're pictures. 
in the same way, the author of Hebrews has already given us this analogy to see that the physical tent, this tabernacle, was only a shadow, a copy of the real, which we've never seen, the real, right? That's just a copy. It's a, it's a shadow. Hebrews 8 verse 5 says this better. It says, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. In other words, you're going to build this thing, but you're building it to look like something that you've never seen before. Make it look like the actual presence of God, holy, greater. He says, not made with hands, that is, not like a tent, but a heavenly throne room, the presence of God. Verse 12 continues, he, that's Jesus, entered once for all, amen, praise God, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, not regular, not ongoing, eternal. You see, Jesus didn't just bring the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. And he didn't come alongside as the sacrifice, a high priest. He was and is the high priest. He's both. As high priest, he enters into the actual presence of the judge and brings blood and therefore gains mercy for us. He brings it by his own blood, an eternal redemption, it says, meaning he doesn't have to keep bringing a sacrifice. It is finished, as he said. That's why he said it is finished. When Jesus' blood was poured out on the cross, that veil, throw that diagram back up there if you don't mind. That veil on the left over there that separates holy God from sinful humanity, um, it was in the temple. It was a structure that was a really high place. It was their epicenter of worship. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, the moment that he died, that, that curtain that separated God from man, it says it tore like that, top to bottom. You know Why? Because that's an image that that barrier, for one, was, was removed. A holy God and sinful humanity, no longer barrier. We have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. But also, notice it happened from top to bottom. Meaning that it wasn't a human being that went in there and, and, and made this happen. God himself came into that space and said, I have made a way. It's a beautiful picture of the fact that God has brought those who are far off near by the blood of Jesus. Access granted because God's wrath was satisfied. Access granted. When I was a kid, I watched uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. How's that for a follow-up? I watched SpongeBob, and there's an episode of SpongeBob called No Weenies Allowed. And this episode of SpongeBob, um, he wants to go into this, uh, how can I explain this? Put a picture up there of the salty spittoon, if you don't mind. <laughs> this is a space for nothing but the toughest of the tough guys. SpongeBob is not a tough guy. He's a weenie, okay? And he can't go into this tough space. Access is denied to him. And in fact, there's like a bouncer that's out in front, and everybody that walks up to the salty spittoon, he says, welcome to the salty spittoon. How tough are you? Like that. And then that actually was a good impression, wasn't it? Some of you guys know that that was spot on. <laughs> It was impressive. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm surprised that just came out of my mouth. So he always says, welcome to the salty spittoon. How tough are you? And they'd say, how tough am I? And then they'd do something that's tough. Like say, I just, I can beat up anybody here. Or, or some guy like uh, or Sandy, I think, rips a tattoo off of him and puts it back on him upside down or something like that. And so SpongeBob's trying to get in. And he's like, how tough am I? And he says, I can open this bottle of ketchup. So he takes it and he goes. Mm-hmm. And he says, can I run this over some water? 
like that. It's because he's, he's a weenie. He's not tough. And so <clears throat> the guy tells him he needs to get lost. There's another tough guy that walks up and says, he says, welcome to the salty spittoon. How tough are you? And the guy says, how tough am I? I had a bowl of nails for breakfast this morning. And the guy goes, so? He goes, without any milk. And he's like, oh, right this way. Anyway, he tells SpongeBob to get lost because he's not tough enough. Show where SpongeBob goes. Next image. The Weenie Hut Juniors. That's it. He goes to Weenie Hut Juniors. In fact, he says, you want me to go to Weenie Hut Juniors? He says, no, 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 the place next to it. And I don't have a picture of this one, but it's super Weenie Hut Juniors. And that's where you go and have milkshakes and talk about comic books and stuff, which, you know, whatever. Anyway, when I think about access denied, that's what I think about, which is a heck of a segue. I know. Please, for the love, take that down. Thank you. Um, here's why I say that. Your access before a holy God is not contingent on how spiritually tough you are. There's nothing that you can do to prove your toughness, your godliness, that you got the chops to stand before the presence of a holy God. There's nothing that you can bring to the table to prove your spiritual worth and your toughness to enter into that environment. Nothing. Access denied. It's not based on you. It's not based on your church attendance. Your access to heaven, to God, is not based on how many Bible verses that you know. It's not based on how well you did at parenting this week. It's not based on whether you've abstained from substance abuse in your life. It's not based on whether or not you've drifted over the years. It's not based on whether or not you've had an abortion. It's not based on whether or not you fit the mold of what a church person looks like. It's not based on who your family is, what kind of environment you were raised in. Your access to a holy God is based on Jesus and whether or not you've repented and believed in the gospel. Period. And because you have access, this is the second solution, you bear no guilt. You bear no guilt. You have a purified conscience. You have a purified conscience. Those words may just run through you without registering. I want you to think about that word guilt and conscience. Because I believe that everyone in this room struggles to feel like they got a clean conscience struggles to feel like they can say, I'm, I've been purified in the deepest parts of my heart. If you go and Google the words tormented by and then stop there and look at the, the suggestions, the fourth leading suggestion, meaning that quite a few people have searched for this, is tormented by guilt. It's tormented by guilt. And really, I would even argue that the first three things, things like anxiety and other stuff, they're just manifestations of even that word, guilt. Tormented by guilt. The world is searching, in other words, for an escape from the guilt within. We're searching, and not just us, everyone is searching for the, the solution for the heavy weight of guilt that we struggle with. We need a deep cleaning, church. Verse 13, I love this. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the, the way that they've been doing it, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is the blood of animals, God's instruction to make them ceremonially clean according to the flesh. It was very important to Jewish people to be rendered ceremonially clean. It was a huge deal. They couldn't be welcomed into a family a holiday. They couldn't be welcomed into a worship environment unless they were deemed ceremonially, physically of the flesh, clean enough. It's a big deal to them. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you got a bigger problem than ceremonial uncleanness. They may have been able to wash up or bring an offering that would gain them access to a room or a feast. 
but there was nothing they could do to deal with the problem of sin that burrows deeply into every single person from our birth. Our true problem runs deeper than ceremonial or bodily uncleanness. We have a heart problem. We have a great problem, a greater problem, but we also have a greater solution. Verse 14 is that solution. If those things sanctify, purify the flesh, the body, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through his eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he's better than all the animals. How, how, will those things, will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? From the lesser to the greater. That's, the, that's what we've called this whole series in Hebrews, greater. It's a, it's a greater way. God has made a greater way. The blood of animals couldn't cut it. We saw this back in the second part of verse 9. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper is what it says in the second part of verse 9. Then you have the purification of the flesh, which can't perfect you. But now we see a purified conscience. That's not a matter of the body. That's a matter of the heart. And God said in Ezekiel 36 that he was going to do something to make that right. Which Baptism is a picture of this. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 26 says, I will, notice it's future tense, we know that it's now past tense, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That's a big statement. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. Why do you need a new heart and a new spirit? Because your current one is bad. It is dead. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Here's what God is saying. He's going to do something future tense in Ezekiel. We know it's past tense in the name of Jesus. That he's going to take an unclean and dead heart and he's going to make you clean and alive. Praise Jesus. These baptismal waters represent that. We use water because it represents washing, made clean. But also we bury them and raise them to new life because it represents that they have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer them who lives, but Christ who lives in them. Beautiful. And yet, in light of all those things, and that's the good news of the gospel, praise be unto God for that. But here's the the reality of things. Sin still has a way of still making us feel gross on the inside. And part of that's a gift. Hear me say this. Part of that gross feeling is a gift because you could use the word conviction. That God exposes that you've got still lingering sin in your life that you need to take care of, right? Confess before God and and repent and turn away from. That's a gift of God. And conviction is a gift on the path to confession and God's loving embrace. But please hear this. Guilt is different than that. Guilt has no place in the life of a redeemed believer. If you struggle with guilt today, I got some good news for you, man. Listen for the next five minutes. Guilt has no room in the life of a redeemed believer. You know who has reason to feel guilty? Who has reason to feel guilt? The guilty. That's who should feel guilty. The guilty. I know that sounds obvious, but that's the truth. Who has, who has reason to feel guilty? Those that stand guilty, condemned. And you were long a criminal against a holy God. You were the guilty party with an outstanding death warrant. But Jesus made that payment. Jesus satisfied the death penalty. That's why he died. He He became guilty so that you who were guilty could become what he is, which is innocent. We looked at that just a few weeks ago. That Jesus, John MacArthur, said Jesus Jesus was treated on the cross like you so that you could be treated like him. Innocent. He was treated as guilty 
so that you who are guilty can be treated as innocent. It's a seemingly contradiction that we see in Ezekiel 34, but I want to read it. It says, God's, God's a just God. It says, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Man, that sounds good. But who will by no means clear the guilty. How can God both pardon the guilty and punish the guilty simultaneously? Those two things, boom, together at Calvary. Where the punishment was served to the guilty. Jesus called himself such. That's why we just sang those lyrics. I love the song we just sang where it says, the God the just, the just, meaning he always punishes. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. One of Satan's favorite lies is the one that says that your life is too messed up to go to church. One of Satan's favorite lies is the one that says that your life, that you are too messed up to go to church, that you're too messed up to be a church person, to be a Christian, that you're just too far gone. Please hear me say this. We are not here because we have it together. We are here because we accept that we are broken into pieces but have believed in the only one who can piece us back together. To use the analogy that so often I mention is that the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for the broken sinners. And I don't think our culture really grasps that, but we have to. Those that most desperately clung to Jesus in his ministry were not those that had it together. They weren't the religious people. They were those that came with their baggage, with their despair, with their ailments, with their problems, and simply said, Jesus, I'm just going to throw them at your feet. And he said, come on, you who are weary, you who are heavy laden, I'm going to give you rest. Jesus said, the well have no need for a physician, but the, the sick do. Satan loves that lie, that your life is too messed up to go to church or to be a church person. Listen, for you to buy the lie of ongoing guilt is to cheapen the all-sufficient work of Jesus. It cheapens it. It says, yeah, I know that the Bible says that about what Jesus did, but, no but, no. We cannot accept that. To say that cheapens the all-sufficient work of Jesus. You're holding a record of wrong that God has cleared. You're holding a record of wrong that God has cleared. And when you do that, guilt is believing that you're in God's presence by violation. And he does not make violations happen. He's a just God. And when we do that, when we buy into the, the, the myth of guilt for Christian people, it dishonors or disbelieves the work of Jesus we just sang a song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, God with us, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, what? Lose all of their guilty stains. They're gone. And conviction is a gift. He draws us. Thank God for that. Miller just talked about that. Thank God that he draws us when we are far off. But you're not guilty if you're in Jesus. To say that robs God of the payment that he has made on your behalf. And he is all sufficient. The other song that we sang, I, I just want to read this, man. For the throne of God above. We just sang this song. Please hear this. And I, I love this. And I asked the praise team to lead us in this song because it is just so saturated in this text. It says this, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. You know what that means, right? It means you got something to stand on before a judge. Here's the plea. 
a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, the, the actual, right? Not, the, not the, the shadow, the actual. While in heaven he stands, no tongue can say, I don't belong there is what that means. No, nobody can say, I don't have any space in there. As long as Jesus is there, I got a reason to be there. Not on my merit, but because he has paid it all. It goes on and says, when t- Satan tempts me to despair. Church, can you hear me? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, hear this, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all of my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And if that's true, and if you believe that, then I've got some application for you. If you're in Christ, and if you've made a decision to put your faith in Jesus and ask him to save you from your sin, I think that verse 14 is important because it does not say that you were given a pure conscience to live under the burden of guilt. It doesn't say that you're given a pure conscience to go and live however you want. It says that you're given a pure conscience to go and serve the living God. What do we do with grace? We don't abuse it. We don't say, all right, I'm saved. I can go do whatever I want. I can go live lawlessly. That's abusing the marriage that you have to the bridegroom and saying, he's a sucker, he's never going to leave me, and I'm going to cheat on him every day. That cheapens the love of God. That's not not what it says. It says that we have been cleared, given a purified conscience. Why? To go and serve God. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. To lift up others and in humility serve other people. What are we called to do? To go and live like Jesus in a world that desperately needs him. To serve the living God. And so for us who are in Christ, my encouragement to you is to not be dragged down in despair by your guilt. That is from Satan and he wants you to buy the myth, the lie. He has removed all guilt. Praise be unto God. But there are people in this room that can't say confidently that they belong to Jesus. And that you've been wrestling with that. And when I talked about being tormented by dot, 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 fourth leading result in the world on Google is guilt. You feel that. You know what? That is me. In fact, every time I'm here, I'm tormented by that. Because I don't know because I am in despair, and I don't know if I've ever really truly nailed that down and said, Jesus, be my Lord, because you're my Savior. If that's you today, there is reason to feel guilty. And that's because you have never truly given your life to Jesus and said, look on me and pardon me. I'm looking to the blood of Jesus. Today, I invite you to cling to the sacrifice that makes you new, to come and be freed of your guilt. Today, I assure you, he is calling you.